What's up? I'm Justin, and welcome to the Talking Pixels podcast, helping you take your photography from hobby to a career. Today, I'm excited to welcome another absolutely incredible photographer to the podcast. Today's guest is an award-winning wedding and portrait photographer based out of New York City. Not only is she an award-winning photographer, but she's also a Sony artisan of imagery and known internationally for her incredible use of movement, color, and emotion in her photographs. Today, it's my pleasure to introduce to you all Kesha Lambert. Kesha, how are you today? Hi, Justin. I'm well. How are you? Oh, Thank I'm doing you for that super glowing good. introduction. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, it, it, honestly, I feel like I might have understated it. Your work is seriously so amazing. Um, and when I came across it, I was like stunned because you just have a way of connecting your subjects with the camera that is just so incredible to look at and your use of colors is fantastic. So I don't I think I might have honestly undersold your work. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, but um, so thank you again so much for joining me today. Um, but I kind of wanted to cue the listeners into how we got here, um, how I got to have you on the podcast today. Um, I was uh, attending BNH's event, Depth of Field, which was a virtual kind of conference event. And Kesha actually gave a webinar uh, titled From Enthusiast to Full Time. And it immediately caught my attention because obviously, like I said, the goal of the podcast is to help people take photography from a hobby to a career. Um, so I listened to it and I felt like you just provided such valuable insight that aligned perfectly with the mission of the podcast. Um, so I immediately reached out to you on social media and said, hey, like, are, would you be willing to do this? I'd love to have you on as a guest. I feel like your presentation aligned so perfectly with what we're trying to do here. And you so graciously said yes. So thank you very much again. Um, but before we kind of dive into the questions about business and photography and stuff, why don't you kind of tell listeners a little bit about your journey from enthusiast to full-time photographer? Sure. I, I love, I tell this story often and I love telling it. Um, I think it's not unique. Uh, it's relatable. Uh, I am a lawyer by profession. That's what I went to school for and photography in true cliche form was always a hobby. Um, it was a hobby that turned into a side hustle. I was freelancing all while going to law school, all while um, establishing a career in the legal field. And I had a really great job. And during the financial down, uh, during the financial downturn of 2009, I was downsized out of my job. I was a new lawyer, um, hadn't been in the legal field for very long. Um, or at least at that job. And so I was the first to go. <laughs> and, um, and I was expecting twins at the time. And, you know, when you have the rug pulled out from under you while expecting twins, it kind of makes you reevaluate everything. Absolutely. And um, simultaneously, I started to uh, receive opportunities on the photography side of things. My, my, my side hustle thing that um, it just felt like, I was being pushed in this direction that this is, you know, signs are being sent to me that this is what I needed to do. And I wanted to do something that allowed me the a little more control over what I earn and a little more control over my lifestyle and schedule and things like that. And so that's what brought me here. Um, I would love to say I started out with a, a extremely organized plan, but I didn't. I kind of got my stuff together as I was going along the way. And I love talking about this topic. If I can save someone a misstep or, 
you know, tell them what I wished I would have done. <laughs> um, you know, I love to talk about this. Uh, definitely prioritize business over art, which is not intuitive to a lot of us because we we are in this because nine times out of 10 because of our passion because we love the craft. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how I, I got here, just grew the business. It was a real, you know, hands-on natural progression. Um, and I'm here today. I have a very busy photography business now. Absolutely. Yeah. And even, even the pandemic, for, thank you to <laughs> make time, <laughs> but yeah, well, yeah, given the pandemic too, in, in New York, I got to imagine it's been, um, very challenging this year to accomplish much. I mean, I'm not sure I've actually have not talked to anyone who lives in New York and is trying to work in photography recently. Um, I've talked to quite, uh, on the podcast recently, I had a couple people from, uh, Los Angeles. I've had somebody from Florida as well. So I kind of see in the coastal regions a little bit, but I've not actually had the opportunity to talk to somebody from New York about it. Um, how, how has that kind of affected your business? Do you feel like? So it, uh, my business continued to move forward when the world reopened, even in a modified form. Mm -hmm. So you'll hear different testimonies from different people. Uh, I attest, I, I attribute the fact that I continued to work uh, even through the restrictions and changes of what events are and are not allowed. Um, I attribute that to kind of the client base that I've grown and kind of knowing my lead source, you know, kind of pouring into those things that generate leads for me. And so when the world opened back, everything froze to a halt in March of last year, yep. but the world did eventually, things started to reopen. And I, I, if I recall, somewhere in June. Mm -hmm. That um, sounds about right. Yeah. And so when things reopened, people were still getting married. Um, I typically I'm doing a lot of large multicultural weddings and, you know, so large weddings weren't a thing. A lot of those uh, postponed, but then I had a fair amount of people who changed the their plans simultaneously to, you know, downsize their plans. I also had people who were deciding to get married. And so the micro wedding or the mini money right. was born <laughs> and I've been photographing a lot of those. Uh, I also, worked a lot of um, commercial projects for uh, small businesses and for um, taking on some, a couple of larger commercial pro projects as well, which um, all word of mouth. Mm -hmm. So it's been, uh, it's been interesting. So last year was all small weddings and this year, in fact, last weekend, I photographed my first kind of average size wedding it was 125 guests. Um, the, the rules have changed recently in New York City, so people can have weddings with a larger guest count now. Mm -hmm. um, but it's interesting. Like, there's, you know, I, I'm not yet vaccinated, but you have mm -hmm. to. Um, everyone has to have a PCR test before attending the wedding. Wow. Yeah, there are like, um, there's a, it's, it's really interesting. I don't know if it'll change for the dance floor stuff. There are dance floor zones and you can only dance with your pod in the dance floor zones. Wow. Uh, you have to wear mask on the dance floor. Um, and, uh, you can be unmasked. At so there are all these rules, but you can be, you can have your wedding. <laughs> right. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds kind of similar to, cause I, I probably or predominantly photograph weddings as well. And it was, I didn't. I don't know that the restrictions in Ohio were, 
you know, I think they were a little bit shorter as compared to New York cities. Um, mm -hmm. but we faced a lot of the same things and it wasn't until recently also that they opened up dance floors and allowed, I think they're now allowing up to 300 people at weddings, but, um, wow. I've, I've not heard of the, the pod thing on the dance floor. They've uh, right now it's just masks in Ohio. So as long as you have a mask on, you can be on the you dance, floor. dance floor. Yeah. Um, but it was definitely interesting, uh, over the course of the past year and just seeing how, you know, businesses and photography businesses or videography businesses specifically shooting weddings and how couples have had to adapt to these changes. Um, and it's it's been sad to see. I'm sure there's been some instances in New York as well, but I've seen a lot of venues and some uh, different types of vendors who have gone out of business because of this. And part of that, I feel, has to do with the lack of adaptability uh, and, you know, the challenges right. that they faced with it. Um, so do you, how do you feel like you adapted in this scenario? I mean, were you, um, was it easy to work with your clients then to kind of turn this around and help them out? Or did you face a lot of challenges when it came to kind of replanning or rescheduling these weddings? The ch main challenge that I face for my business, um, I don't know if you could hear me, my garage door is being open. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> um, the main challenge that I face is the rescheduling and postponements, mm -hmm. right? So uh, it's like, you know, we had to draw a line in the sand at some point. When this all started, we were being, you know, I continue to be fluid and flexible with our clients. Right. Um, however, we now are faced with couples that whose weddings are not necessarily prohibited from happening, but because they, they don't feel safe. It's a comfort thing. Kind of it's a comfort thing or, or uh, my vision thing. I didn't envision this for my wedding. I'd rather yes. wait until we don't have to be masked and do all mm -hmm. these things. So for whatever reasons, we have, you know, couples who are rescheduling two and three times. And for me, um, I field a lot of inquiries, a lot of leads when I, you know, when we hold a wedding date. Um, we are declining business the moment that we lock in for a client. So right. what was being faced with uh, where I ultimately had to change my policy and approach to this, what I was being faced with is that I was holding, you know, allowing people to change and not, you know, um, charging any rebooking fees mm -hmm. and declining business. And then they'd call me up like, hey, we got to we got to change, change our again. date, um, which is, uh, you know, very frustrating because it's like we are declining other opportunities when we hold a date, but then on their side, they're like, we're just moving our date and, and it's costing them. And I empathize with that. Um, I can't imagine the mess of having to reschedule all of your vendors. Um, and so, yeah, just, that's kind of like been the greatest challenge for me is trying to figure out a policy that, you know, protects my business interests, but also, um, provides an, uh, an experience for our clients where they feel cared for and they feel like they're being treated fairly. Yeah, that, that really is certainly a, a difficult um, balance, right? Because you don't want to be the bad guy in this scenario of, but at the same time, you know, while to them it's just changing a date, to you that's, you know, that's your money, right? That's where, where right. your income's coming from. And 
it, to give somebody three, four dates, you know, hopefully maybe not four, but I've had people who have pushed back two times now. So they're on to date number three and it's, right. you know, it's a challenge and it's hard to justify to yourself that, you know, you're doing the right thing for you at the same time as you're doing the right thing for them. And it's, it certainly is definitely a challenge. Um, and I think it's something, you know, we'd never had to deal with this before. Um, no you know, at least at this capacity of, you know, something that was so out of our control that we really didn't have any influence over if we could do something about it or not. Um, and so this was a huge learning experience. And I was for sure, you know, I've only been doing this f like professionally now for four years. And I, this was like, so eye opening and just, um, I had no idea how I could actually deal with it. And luckily, it worked out. Okay, I think weddings has actually been Strangely enough, one of the safer career paths, I mean, aside from maybe still life and commercial projects and, and when it comes to photography, that weddings was one of the things that didn't really stop. And a lot of people did kind of do those downsizes to, I even had a couple of people do backyard weddings this year. Right. Um, so it was interesting to see how that played out. I was really grateful that my clients were understanding as well. I, I hope that was the same for you too. I, uh, you know, I think some yeah. people understood that on both sides that this wasn't ideal and they didn't want to be those difficult clients and everybody was trying to work together, at least in my experience. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, and I talk about this a lot, right? I talk about rapport building and with your clients and client trust, because those really are the, like, that's all you need to get through complicated things like this, even when, even if it's a first, right? So I had a lot of Couples, they, they, they know that I am a mompreneur and they know <laughs> we're small business. They know that there's a human being behind this and they actually care. You know, it's business, but there's a connection there where the clients are like, okay, how, what can we, you know, how can we work this out, right? Um, when everything was fresh and new, people were really concerned, like, you know, about us and how it was impacting us as well, you know? And so that mutual kind of care is there when you have a rapport with the people you work with. Yeah, absolutely. And that was actually something that I wanted to ask you too, because in your presentation that you did for um, the webinar for B&H, uh, you, you talked about the importance of relationships and relationship management um, when it comes to, you know, either building professional relationships or managing your relationship with your clients. Um, so, I mean, do you want to maybe talk a little bit more about that and how, you know, these being a relationship focused business and how that may have, you know, how that's impacted your growth as a photographer and as a business owner? Um, and what types of relationships are you maybe looking to establish in order to grow your business further? So weddings are personal because there are, you know, it's a personal thing that you're being pulled into to mm -hmm. help the client with. And so that's why personal connection is so important. And so you want clients that leave the, so the relationships I care about, which I think everyone, you know, the obvious is the client relationship. That's like one thing that you pour into, but then every client relationship is got little tree branches that branch off from them, right? So not just the clients, family and friends, but every time you um, show up to a wedding, um, everyone present at that wedding is another branch off of the client tree. Everyone sitting in there has their own individual branches. And so that client relationship is like 
king, right? right? And so I believe in pouring into those client relationships uh, because they're the ones who walk away from the experience if they feel good about it and they are talking about it. Uh, when I show up at the wedding, if people just observe us and they like what they observe, they tell someone who tells someone who tells someone. And so um, that's a relationship that is I have a lot of intention in my planning, communication plan surrounding. Another, so that another type of relationship are, you know, vendor relationships. So, um, and I'm not talking about anything transactional. So there are a lot of people say, get on the venues list, um, which is great if you can do that. I've never actually been intentional about trying to get on venue lists, um, but I have had venues recommend me. Um, And it comes from, uh, you know, pouring into that relationship as well, as well. So like making sure that, you know, a lot of things at times venues will want, if you've had a wedding there, that was a really great wedding. They'll want content for their social Mm -hmm. things like that. Um, I've even sent prints to venues. Uh, A venue told me that they really loved a photo and they would love, you know, I've sent prints and, you know, gift prints to, to venues um, and so that they can, it can sit on your wall somewhere, anywhere in the venue. Um, that's a form of not only making, it's a gift and, and it's a form of making connection, but if they put it up on your wall, your work is there for anyone who walks into that space and sees it. But beyond the bigger, um, I would consider like venues, uh, wedding planners to be like on the, the they're, they're the ones who connect with the client first, right? But everyone who the client could potentially come in contact with is a relationship that um, has potential to uh, lead people back to you. So anywhere from the florist to the calligrapher to um, you, to the person who does the invitation design, every every one of those relationships. Now, I don't believe in trying to make them transactional. So even though there is a certain degree of transaction, you there's a photographer position to establish rapport with vendors because every vendor wants content, right? right. You're producing content. So that's your in. But it really should be um, it, the, most, the best relationships, the one where people are like little foot soldiers for you and they really are enthusiastic about referring to you are the ones that come from a place where you really connected with them. And so some of these people are friends, like actual friends. And even if they aren't friends, I've had like, I've shown genuine interest in things that would benefit them. I've tried to be a resource to them in ways that might even not even have anything to do with photography. And so... <clears throat> Yeah, I believe, you know, you should put uh, genuine effort into uh, growing those relationships. And it may seem like the slow path, but eventually you find that all these things that you've poured into, all these seeds that you've planted start to generate a lot of leads for you and a lot of um, new relationships. Absolutely. That's And that's something that I've heard from um, <clears throat> a lot of different wedding photographers that is something as simple as sending out, you know, a 11 by 14 print or something to a venue could ultimately lead to so much more work for you um, and a positive relationship with that venue. And um, I think, you know, in my experience as a wedding photographer, it's very easy to um, connect with uh, people like the videographer and DJ because you do ultimately end up spending a lot of time with them in the reception period and with the videographer maybe throughout the whole course of the day 
but it is a little, it can be a little bit more challenging to make those connections, um, with, you know, the florists or, um, you know, the event plan or the, the venues event planner, if they're kind of running around all day, but I, I think you're right. It's, it, it's important to kind of take time to go and try to establish those relationships because those are where referrals, I mean, that's probably the easiest way to get referrals, um, outside of your clients is through those other vendors that you're working with. Um, so professional relationship wise, that's, that's huge. And I, I try at least myself to reconnect with those people on social media and get established into, you know, other wedding groups on Facebook and stuff like that. So I can connect with them further past just, you know, the day of the wedding. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely great tip. Um, I, I do want to do a little backtracking here too, because I think it's very interesting to me, at least that you started out as a lawyer and then went into photography. Cause I don't know that I've met anybody who had a career in law that then decided that they were going to full 180 into, you know, a full-time photographer. Um, so as a, business owner, I have to imagine that having your background in law um, has been, you know, hugely helpful into building your business and making sure that you're doing things properly and securing yourself, your business and your family. Um, many photographers that I know, I think are typically more on the creative side, they, they don't, I think the challenge in becoming a full time photographer is not having a full understanding of the business side. Um, right. So what kind of role do you feel like your law background kind of played in developing your business? And, you know, are there any things that you picked up from your background in law that you were able to apply early on into your business that helped you kind of push that forward and make sure that you were safe and protected as a business owner? Uh, so, yeah, I think one is the overall kind of mindset I have comes from my law, law background. Uh, I love you know, I'm driven to this craft by 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 my love of the craft. But the moment I decided that this is how I was going to earn a living, um, the wires switched and my priorities switched. So the mindset I had about this, like the the talent is there, it will be it will be developed. I need to learn, um, continue to learn and get better, and I need to be great at my craft. But more importantly than that, I need to have my house in order. And more importantly than that, I need to know how I'm going to generate leads and how I'm going to close those leads. And like my, my priorities, so that my overall mindset, I think that comes from the background. The other thing is, and I guess this also ties into mindset that the legal background helps me with two other things I would say is risk management. I think in terms of risk management, so obviously contracts and things like that, but just overall, the overall experience, like having a, an effective communication plan in place, what kinds of things can I do, do to reduce risk of, you know, those certain types of risks uh, towards the business and what kind of things can I do to have successful client relationships? But uh, I, I joke that, um, I've heard this joke many times too, that law school kind of messes you up. If you see, see life, you see scenarios in terms of who can get sued. Yeah. Um, and it's true. That's funny. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and I think that has served me well because in being, in seeing things in that way, I often think of things like my contract 
was prepared for the pandemic, even though it didn't say anything about a pandemic. Oh, wow. And, um, and I've obviously made adjustments as things unfolded, but I wasn't as vulnerable as some of my um, colleagues who, you know, obviously this was on none of our radar, but if right. you think, if you have a risk management mindset, um, you're thinking of putting um, so, so resolutions in place in the event of the unthinkable. And so that has served me well. And then the client relationship, obviously like weddings are ripe for people to be unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Too much can go wrong. <laughs> so many like little things could potentially go wrong and color whether or not a person is happy and it could have nothing to do with photography. It could have nothing to do it could ever, you know, so many, so much room for that. And so um, getting out in front of that was also on my radar. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and so I got to imagine that you have put a lot of time into contracts and just making sure that, uh, you know, you're covered in, I mean, that's actually amazing that you, you were covered in your contract for something like a pandemic, you know, without necessarily wording it as a pandemic, but right. you were covered in that sense. I think a lot of people were un, unsure of what to do uh, because that's right. just not something, you know, we hadn't even seen anything like this in nearly a hundred years. Nobody was thinking about it. it uh, you know, although there were warning signs that it still seemed to come out of nowhere, you know, like we saw it happening in other countries, but we didn't think it was going to be a big deal. And then all of a sudden it was a big deal, it was a um, big deal. and it was too late to act then. Um, so do you have any like advice for photographers who may not, you know, I know you're not a lawyer now, so legal advice, maybe not something you're super comfortable giving, but at least maybe a resource or something to look at in terms of making sure that you have sound protection in terms of contracts and, uh, you know, covering yourself as a legally as a, a business entity. So my general advice even if I if even if I were giving legal advice, I wouldn't give it. <laughs> um, I, I don't want to get sued. No. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, she said she was a lawyer. <laughs> um, no, my general advice would be that uh, as a business, you need to invest in yourself, and part of that investment should factor in investments into securing yourself financially. So accountants or things like that. Um, But you should also invest in protecting yourself legally. And so, yes, use, it's better to have something than nothing. And there are a lot of amazing templates out there. Use those to the extent that like investing in a a, a representation, a lawyer um, is cost prohibitive for you. But if it's not, it's worth every penny to consult with someone who's knowledgeable and who can give your contract a checkup, I recommend doing it at least once annually. It's it's really, um, depending on where you are, it's really not that big of an investment. It's worth every penny to make sure that you're protected. Um, so yes, use step templates as a starting point, but it's worth every penny to invest in hiring counsel to look over your, your contracts and make sure that they are serving your protecting your interests, make sure that they are enforceable. That's another thing. You could think you have all these great clauses that protect you, but they're not actually going to be upheld if you ever needed to. So you just want to have someone look over and make sure that you are covered. Um, and, And I would say also 
which is kind of not really um, law, law, it's, I guess it's law related, is risk management is not just your contract, it's your communication plan. Um, covering yourself is not just what you had your client sign. It's right. about how you communicate with them throughout the experience about what you put them on notice of, of you know, how, it's all of those things. You want to make sure that that you have both in place because in the unlikely event that you have something in your contract that is not enforceable, they would look to surrounding things like communication and things like that to kind of determine what is the right course of action. In, in so mm-hmm. you want to make sure that you are thinking in risk in terms of risk management, not just in terms of the contract. That makes sense. I mean, and so maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but in, in, in a sense is that from the communication side, like being very clear in what the expectations are and what, you know, what the game plan is going to be. And that way that it's not left up to debate if, if it ever does come to a situation like that. Be, yep. Being very clear and documenting it. Mm. So, um, everything in writing <laughs> yeah, or video, right? So you want to, <laughs> mm-hmm. you want to, you want to communicate, but also remember as it pertains to weddings in particular, the clients are inundated with information and a lot of people don't read or when they do read, they don't remember, they don't retain it. And so you want to document it that when you've communicated something with someone, even the things that they sign, um, make sure that they have access. Something simple as making sure they have access to it. I love the CRMs that are out there now where you have a portal for your client and they can access everything. So making sure they have access to their contracts and invoices and things like that. But also anything, if you have guides, like what to expect guides, or if you have a, a meeting with the client, say, hey, can we record our Zoom meeting? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that, and I'll send you a copy so that we have, I mean, this is, this may seem, you know, um, uh, like uh, over what you call it, overly cautious, but I think it's not, I think it's important to document everything. So including your, your verbal communication to the extent that you can have a video chat instead of a phone call um, and record it and say, Hey, this is for both of us. Um, but, you know, uh, talking and writing um, and documenting yeah, that's a great uh, – the Zoom call thing has been – I mean, we're literally on Zoom right now. But, that I mean, it's yeah. been a big change in, I would say, almost every industry in terms of um, how meetings go. And then I, I hadn't even thought about it from that perspective. But, yeah, as opposed to a phone call, right, where you may come to a verbal agreement – if you're doing it on Zoom, you have that ability to record the actual call and have, the, you know, should you ever need that proof that that was the agreement that you came to, you have it now. Um, and that's actually a really great tip too, which I hadn't thought of because I've been doing Zoom calls with clients since last March and I hadn't <laughs> recorded a single one. <laughs> that's a great well, tip though. Ask them at the beginning, are you okay with us recording this so that you have it, can have it to refer back to later and we can both have it, you know, we want to make sure, I don't know things vary from state to state about recording, but just right. make sure you ask them at the start. And yeah, it's just good to have on hand. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so another question for you here. Um, recently, I had uh, somebody I know who's been a hobbyist for years. He started probably almost 10 years ago, back about the same time I started. Um, but he's still kind of in the hobbyist state. 
Uh, and he asked me, and now this is something that I'd also seen you kind of touch on in your presentation, but I, I wanted to hear a little bit more about your take on this because you also kind of made that transition from, uh, you know, a corporate job to hobbyist to full-time or, you know, in, in that mix of things. Um, but he asked me, you know, when did I know it was going to be the right time for me to jump into photography full-time? Um, and I know everyone has different let, you know, what, what's going on in people's lives is always going to be different and it never really does feel like a good time. Um, but at least for me, I knew that it was time when I was making enough money from my side photography business um, at the time uh, to offset my full-time job's income enough that I felt like if I put the additional time into my business, I would be exceeding what I was making at my full-time job. And so that was when I knew that it was a good time for me to make the jump. But it's it's definitely a hard thing to gauge and know when, you know, it's, it is a risk. And you talked about calculated risks. And that's actually something that I've not really heard a lot of photographers talk about, but that's a very common thing in business, right? Is taking risks, but understanding that the benefits and the cons of both sides, right. right? So what do you think or, you know, if if somebody asks you when would be the right time to jump into their photography as a full-time business, how, how would you respond to that? I would first say that it's a personal analysis and that you cannot model your right time off of anyone else's, right? But I would say the ingredients of switching to full-time um, like completely, that's your full focus. The ingredients are that it would not be to your detriment. Um, in other words, you'll be able to sustain while you grow your business. Because why not have multiple streams of income? Why mm -hmm. not have, you know, I do understand the level of time commitment it takes to grow a full-time business, but you don't necessarily, you can put people in place to help you do that while you continue to have right. that income, right? So I would say that analysis should involve like kind of a bit of what you, you mentioned, like it doesn't have to be your threshold, but um, can you sustain while doing this? Because a business will have highs and lows and you're going to, in the first at least couple of years, you're going to start to learn, especially if you're doing something seasonal like weddings, you're going to learn you're busy and, and off season and you're going to have to get a strategy in place for getting through the off season, right? And so that's not something that's going to happen immediately. You're going to need to be prepared to, to ride those highs and lows. And so it's a very personal um, analysis. Now, for those who were like me, who didn't go into this, like with a, uh, I planned for it, that I actually had my, you know, I, I lost my job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I decided from there, I initially like started scrambling looking and then I slowed down and stopped and reevaluated. And I, as I, I was like, I'm going to do this. Um, I was able to do it full disclosure because I had a husband who was working at the time. Um, we were a two income household. Yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't ideal, but I knew that I, the timing was such that, uh, especially expecting twins, that I needed to just slow down and kind of reevaluate. So if you are a person that has the rug pulled out from under you and you, it's not so much about uh, deciding whether you, you know, you financially can do it, you kind of have no choice but to do it in terms of financially, I would say, you know, you, you, be encouraged that you 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 can do it and do do what you need to do in terms financially, um, 
if you're kind of thrown into going full time, do what you need to do financially to sustain. So that means even if you want to focus on weddings, you might do some portrait work or you might do like um, some of the month, some event work that is not necessarily what you're trying to do. You might do some types of work that you don't necessarily want to show in your portfolio. Do those things while you transition. Yeah, that's <clears throat> that's hugely insightful, and I I do want I do want to ask you this too because as you know, somebody who has a family as well, and you were making that jump into full time photography, knowing you had twins on the way, I've asked another photographer this uh, recently on the uh, on the podcast too. But I think a lot of people uh, struggle with the justification of trying to pursue photography while having a family that they're also trying to support at the same time. Um, and obviously, obviously you've made it work and you're, you're very successful at what you do and you're able to sustain your family from your photography. Do you have any advice maybe for those people who would love to pursue photography, but are also worried about maybe the opinions of their family or the idea that they may not be able to support their family if they do go this path because of the uncertainty of it all? So my one advice is that you have to this is going to sound cheesy, <laughs> but you have to believe that you can do this. You really do. Like mm -hmm. if you're already telling yourself mentally, if you're focusing, focused on the stats that they have for what a photographer earns, right. um, if you are paying attention to what people have, uh, people's opinions of what a photography career looks like, you already have lost the battle. If you, you, you the number one thing that has kind of propelled me forward is kind of putting blinders on to all the, the stats look grim for what a photographer can earn. That's true. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Don't <laughs> Google it. <laughs> no, no. Because, and you know, my reality and the reality, I've known quite a few successful photographers. Are there highs and lows? Yes. But I know quite a few successful photographers who are really doing so well and if I wouldn't have known that this was possible, if I'd listened to those things, um, just if you think about the numbers, if you think about weddings, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. If you think about the pool of people who need a wedding photographer and how you just need, you know, just think about the numbers of it. The key is um, really just tapping into how you reach those people. Right. Right. And, and it, and it, and it's not this like unicorn fantasy thing. Like people are always getting married. People always need photographers. They're especially the world we live in now where content is king. There are small businesses popping up, new YouTubers popping up, new um, reality, you know, projects, yeah. all kinds of things. People need photographers. And so whatever those stats out there, it's about you um, one, having the right mindset going into it and putting a plan in place. I think a lot of photographers don't tap into that multi-billion dollar industry that we have mm -hmm. because um, our priorities are focused on learning about, which is important, lighting and um, posing and how to you know do something really beautiful. And that's wonderful, but we need to really focus a lot of energy on learning how to find new leads and mm -hmm. close those leads and how to sell um, to our clients and things like that. Uh, artists find that 
icky. <laughs> I think a lot of artists find it like icky to talk about selling and things like that. But that's kind of how you have to kind of rewire your mind and, and it's doable. You're right. And I had heard, and I can't, I wish I could remember who had said this, um, but I had heard another photographer say, you know, photography traditionally has been a luxury business, right? Um, I, it was not something back in the day when photography started, it was not something that everybody could afford. Um, you were creating heirlooms essentially through photography. And mm -hmm. since the digital age, it seems, you know, that everybody wants to be a photographer. It's a very appealing career to get into, right? Because you're creating art, you're creating for people. Um, you know, people love to brag about their photos that they had done. And so I think ultimately with the, the cost of equipment being, you know, this entry level equipment being so low, so many people have gotten into it and it's not necessarily a bad thing. I think, you know, there's a high and low price point for pretty much everything, but I think right. that along the way people have forgotten that photography is a, a skilled career path that you go into, you know, you, you have spent a lot of time and energy and effort learning how to be a photographer, how to take great photos, how to pose a photo, the, the things you talked about um, that, you know, we focus a lot of time on, but people don't justify their prices based off of all that time necessarily. You know, I think a lot of people are focused on being the most cost effective or how they can compete with those people who are trying to be cost effective. When in reality, you know, it, there's a lot of photographers out there who are making top dollar for the work that they're creating, who may or may not be more skillful than whoever it is that's listening to this podcast, you know, but they have that business understanding that I'm creating a, you know, a service and an experience for somebody that is unparalleled. And that costs more than, you know, these small, uh, I hate to say like the mini session but thing, costs, but it costs, right. right. So that's a, yeah, you shouldn't co price compare yourself. It's, one of those things, right? Yeah, and it's a challenge to get out of that mindset too, I think, especially when you're trying to, you know, maybe you don't have a client list that you can fall back on or people who come to you regularly or referrals and you're just like kind of getting started out. You're you're you may see your barrier to entry being price that mm -hmm. I have to charge a lower price so that I can start getting clients to get in and that's, you know, there's some truth to that too, I think, but at the same time, I I think it's important not to forget that your end goal should be charging what you feel your value is, not necessarily charging what you think will get people in your door. Right. I mean, it's price is always the first thing that comes to mind as an entry point into anything, especially if you're trying to build. What do we do? We start out by giving things away for free or we mm -hmm. start by, out by pricing ourselves really low. And that's a lot of people's pathway as an entry point into business, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, and and also, one thing to bear in mind is that there's more than one way to run a successful business. If you are the budget um, photography model, that's also fine, mm -hmm. right? Because this is, as you mentioned, we're crafting out an experience that we is uniquely our own. We're crafting out a business model that is uniquely our own. The key is to put together a model that is profitable. And so even if you are the budget photographer, Make sure that what you're crafting in terms your structure is profitable um, because the budget photography structure is not competing with someone that is on a higher end price point or a middle ground price point. Right. Um, 
And, and it's just, it's just a matter of, it takes, it's not a comparison thing. It takes no, it takes, it's a individualized analysis. Mm -hmm. It's not something where you can look at what other photographers in your region are, are charging. It's about putting together your experience and pricing it and knowing who, who your target is, who's your, who's your, you know, who's your target client? Um, where, what are they buying? What are they interested in? And how can I sell it to these people? Yeah. I, and that's, you know, and I think that's important too, to kind of, you know, just find out where, where do you feel that you belong? I think that comes sort of like with the identity of being a photographer and a business owner, but what is your experience? Uh, sorry. Um, I mean, asking the listener here, what is the experience that you're offering to, you know, your client? And where does that fall? Is it, you know, and for a lack of a better comparison, something that just came to me very quickly here, but is it a more of a, like the fast food type experience? Is it more of a, you know, a middle ground dining experience? Or are we talking a Michelin star restaurant experience? And then thinking about it in terms of where you may be now and where you want to be and what steps do you need to take to get to that next point if that's where you want to be? Or if you're comfortable being where you're at, how can you take that and amplify it to get more clients in the door or to help justify, you know, if you are on the lower end, you're going to need a lot more clients versus the person who's on the upper end who only takes on 10 clients a year and does $15,000 weddings. You know, um, it's, it's finding that balance in trying to determine where you fall on that spectrum of, uh, uh, I don't know what word to use, but on the spectrum of business. Amazing analysis. The restaurant <laughs> yeah. point of comparison, and and following that, I think it's important to not be the Michelin star restaurant uh, offering your Michelin star experience, uh, Michelin experience at McDonald's fast food rates, right. right? So it's like being very attentive to what your what you put together, what your the experience you're crafting, mm -hmm. right? And not, and conversely, not having a fast food um, experience that you are doing uh, Michelin numbers. Uh, you know, like you need to ensure that your everything matches up. And then once you do, there's no no need to compete because it's just now about um, educating people about what it is that they're um, investing in and why it's worth the investment. Absolutely. Um and I also kind of wanted to get into something a, a little different here too, because you as a New York City photographer, um, that is one of the hubs of probably the most photographers in the country, I would imagine. Uh, most people <laughs> claiming to be photographers in the country. Um, so it obviously has to be a very difficult marketplace to kind of break into. And I was just curious, obviously, you've spent a lot of time now developing your style and building your business and clientele. But as somebody who may be in a larger city, thinking L.A., Chicago, New York, um, Austin, places where there's going to just be a lot of competition, um, how do you think is a good way to go about separating yourself? Or what do you have to analyze within your own business and your personality or your work to determine what is going to be that separation between you and that other person who's offering the same services as you? So you, the separation is you, no one, <laughs> no one sees the world the way you do, mm -hmm. right? No one 
to the extent that you, I, I think the starting point is for you to develop as a creative, right? To, there are, and there are those, if you are crafting your style around someone else's, that's where the points of comparison will be, right? And everything is up to perception. I might, for example, think that I am have carved myself out to be this unique, um, unique experience, unique work that I provide. And there may be a uh, hundred people who see my, something in my work, and they're like, "No one else has work like this." Mm-hmm. And there may be another hundred people who see my work and say, "Yeah, it's just like so and so and so and so's," and they their their price is much lower. That's fine, but to the extent that you can craft out your signature, um, bring, infuse yourself and your vantage point into the experience you provide, into the images that you create, infuse yourself into that. And not only develop that style, but be able to communicate what that style is. Communicate it in all of your branding and show it um, effectively. This is where branding comes in, is so important. What is your story? What is your work about? Being able to not only, uh, what's the word? Verbalize that, be be able to like say it, but also for it to match up with the work that you show. Having that, your work stand out is important, but also even if it isn't the work, the experience that you provide, giving people something to talk about. Um, When it comes to people work, what people are saying about you and the experience they had is everything. And so I, that's what I would say. It, it may not, it, I think the actionable, it's, I'd love to get, answer questions in terms of what you can do. Um, but this is really about, I think the moment that I stopped trying to be a wedding photographer, like research what wedding photography is. Mm-hmm. And, this, these are the wedding poses, but started to try to infuse myself into the work that I made. Um, I had developed a style and I developed a body of work that people saw as not comparable to someone else's. They needed me particularly, specifically. And I think, and, and then forget me, like whether, if, let's say you have a business with a team of photographers, what is your... What is your formula? What is your, mm-hmm. you know, what are people, do you have a signature as a business that when people come to this business, they can only get that thing from you? Right. Yes, they can get wedding photography from everybody, but they can't get this thing that you bring. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of like, you got to get that and then you got to tell it to the world and mm-hmm. show it to them. And so how, how do you communicate that to potential clients? I know, and you you do have a couple other photographers, I believe, right, that work for your business as well. Um, so I guess this is, a, I have a lot of questions about that. So I'm going to try to simplify this a little bit. But um, so how do you go about communicating, you know, the style or the experience or, you know, the important elements of your business to a potential client? And then, you know, something that I've kind of been facing myself recently is I've had a, a number of inquiries come in to the point that I actually can't even entertain the the ones that are coming in, but people are coming to me for my wedding photography and my experience, right? And so it's it's difficult to sell them on 
you know, I have second shooters that I work with and I've trained and like got them to the point that I feel confident in their ability to replicate what I'm doing. But the people who are coming to me are expecting me, right? So how do you go about communicating, you know, your style, but also the people that you've trained that work for you that, you know, you have the belief in them that they can do it. But how do you communicate that as well to your potential clients there? So one of the things, and this is something that I'm, to be fully transparent, still developing and learning, mm -hmm. but one of the things that I do is try to frame out them as individuals, frame out their identity, and I don't sell them on as many Keshas. Okay. Um, they have, like, they have followed my approach and philosophy, have been mentored by me, but they are individuals, look at their work. Um. And so they have individual profiles on my website, which still under development, they have individual Instagram accounts. Mm -hmm. um, they have their own brand story. And um, also just pulling the veil back and allowing people to see us work. Um, they, you know, so that's, those are kind of like, ultimately you want to educate people about what they are getting into. Uh, associates, um, if, if, done right um some people find more success in separating it out from their brand altogether like if you have i don't know if your your brand is in your name that's one of the challenges when your brand yes. is in your name and you have associates it's like people are attracted to, to the brand because your name is on it what mm -hmm. do you, you know kesha lambert photography where's kesha right. right um so one of the things that um some people I, some colleagues of mine I know have done with who have associates is separated out, give it a complete different name. I see. Um, I haven't reached that point yet. I've been having, um, I've been having uh, quite a bit of success with it in the way we've modeled it now. Mm -hmm. um, have I run into some bumps? Yes. Right. So um, that's on the table for me as well, like separating it out into another brand. Um, but I, I believe a big part of it is kind of kind of carving them out, um, educating people, letting people see them work, um, letting them fall in love with them the way they fell in love with you. Because that's ultimately what happens, right? When somebody chooses you, um, it's because they feel a connection to the work and they saw little things about, they've heard things about you. Um, and so that takes time if you're starting out for it to build up, you know, for people Absolutely. to... So. Yeah, that's that's actually, and I did hear that from another. I don't know if you know Scott Robert Lim, who's also a Sony artisan. I was a, is a mentor of mine, and he kind of said the same thing. You know, there's ways that you can go about kind of diversifying. He kind of leans more towards the separating the brand from your own personal brand route. But I found it interesting that you had, you know, you because I, I was looking through your website and saw that you had your associates listed out and little bios on them. Um, and so I was just curious how that kind of panned out for you and if how that was playing into the success of your business. Um, so that's very interesting to hear. Um, and then I got one final question for you here before we kind of dive into some more fun type of questions. But um, you briefly were talking about it, I got, uh, probably like a question or two ago about the developing a style, right, with your work. And it, it takes a lot of time to do. I mean, speaking from personal experience myself, it took me several years to develop just, you know, an editing style to my work that when you look at it, it was like, oh, well, Justin created that, you know, um, that at least clients who follow me were able to tell us, you know, when it comes up. 
And I think it's a very challenging thing to, uh, you have to kind of look into yourself and reflect on what that is. Um, but you've developed a, an incredible style between just, I think, in the actual pre-production of it, or I guess actually the production of it. So with the, when it comes to the posing and directing of your images, as well as with your lighting and with your um, your editing styles as well. So how do you define that style when you're explaining it to a potential client? And how do you feel that you've developed it over time to the point where you are now, you know, if you reflect back five, 10 years ago? So I would say my style is ever developing. Um, and one thing that I'm okay with, it's okay for your style to change. It's, it's going to update. It's going to evolve. That comes with growth. Right. And so, um, I expect to be, if Lord willing, I'm still doing this to be even better or, or I might even be different a couple years from now. Um, so that's kind of like my mindset about style. Um, I define my style, I've, you know, I've come to define my style because I realize what, you know, learning how I work, what gets me ticking, um, the work that I want to make, what resonates with clients that I'm working with. That's kind of what has driven me kind of defining what the style is. And if I, and I communicate it in my brand messaging, I communicate it in the photos I choose to show on my social channels and things like that. Um, I define it as, um, if, you know, I tell people that I do a, a mix of timeless, clean, and classic, but that's not where the focus is. I spend more of the time. Um, my goal is for you to have a signature and for you to have something that is uniquely your own. So I, mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time taking chances and that we're in this together. Like we're on a journey together to get something. Um, and there are things that I love to include in all of the work, movement, light, color, things like that. So I communicate these things to people and I let them know my approach um, throughout my branding, but also in the way in, in communication with them. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. So it sounds like to you that style necessarily doesn't stop at the photograph. It, it comes from all elements of the business itself when it comes to what you're presenting as well, you know, what you're sharing on social media, how you're communicating it to your clients. It doesn't, your style doesn't just stop at, you know, the click of the shutter. And then once you bring it into Lightroom or Photoshop, it, it, it goes beyond that. Is that correct? Yes, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, if I had to say what style is for me, it's, um, it's my, your, for me, my style is my thought process and a philosophy and end goal that I want for the image. Right. Mm -hmm. And so style is, um, the thought process before making the image. It's the inspiration you pull from in making the image and it's how you, um, how it comes together in post. Right. Mm -hmm. But the consistent aspect of it is the philosophy and approach and the elements that I'll bring to it for, for each time that I do this. I'm sorry. That's, that's, that's an uh, awesome breakdown of how you determine style. Um, because I think a lot of people look at it as just, you know, that the edit of my photo is my style, right? They simplify the process down. And I, that's, 
I hadn't looked at it like that in that perspective either. So that was very interesting to hear. Um, but thank you, Kesha. I, I just wanted to break real quick and thank you again for joining me today and sharing all this insight because this has been hugely valuable. Um, even for myself to hear this from you I, as a wedding photographer, this has been very insightful. So thank you so much for sharing all that information with us. Uh, we do like to ask a, or I should say, I like to ask a few fun questions towards the end of the episode here. Um, a little less geared towards business, a little geared towards, uh, you know, more of the fun aspects of photography. So um, are you okay with getting into some of that? Sure. Right on. Okay. Um, so why don't you maybe walk us through a Kesha Lambert wedding day? Um, how do you go about kind of preparing for the wedding um, and how do you tackle such high pressure and long hour days? So we pack the night before usually, lay out everything, have everything geared, geared up, ready to go. I usually leave extremely early. So if I, I'm try, aiming to arrive a few hours earlier than my start time because New York City traffic can be challenging. Oh, true. Um, and I arrive set and ready to go double harnessed up um, <laughs> and like I walk into the wedding day ready to go. Right on. Awesome. Um, cool. So let's say that um, tragedy strikes, you know, we just had that happen this past year, maybe not to this capacity, but a tragedy strikes um, and your business starts to suffer a little bit. You have one camera and one lens um, and $500 to your name. What is your camera choice? What's your lens choice? And how would you use that $500 to relaunch your business? So I'm going to go with the A92 and my 85 millimeter. Um, that's, I, 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 I cannot stand that one, one lens question because I want two. <laughs> <laughs> Always, right? There's never enough, <laughs> especially but, yeah. with fixed focal lengths. Yes. 85, I'm going to do the 85 G Master. Um, and then, um, what am I doing with the $500? I am taking some, treating some clients to, to lunch. I'm treating some clients and some vendors to lunch. Awesome. Very cool. Um, I've, that's not an answer I've heard. I like to ask every photographer that same <laughs> question because it's always, it's, you know, everybody's got their bread and butter camera gear that they go to, but it's really interesting to hear how different people would use the $500 to <laughs> refocus the business and get it back on track. So very cool. Um, so we've talked about it a couple times now, but uh, you know, you've stressed that emotion and movement in your photographs is, you know, an important part of your photography. Um, how do you go about directing and uh, creating this motion in your photographs uh, to create these jaw dropping images? Um, I think that's a lot, a lot of people probably struggle with the posing side of things and getting these really elaborate and beautiful movements. Um, and it, it seems like, you know, you're almost more of a director when it comes to posing, uh, just based off the imagery I've seen. And would you feel that's true? How do you go about doing that? That's a great way of putting it. Yeah, because I'm not, yes, I do have a repertoire of like, like an arsenal of poses in my head. Like mm -hmm. I need something, a baseline to default to, especially when you're working under pressure and you know you need to deliver. Mm -hmm. But I love posing for me, just like light is a tool that you can craft and shape and do amazing, interesting things with. Same philosophy towards posing. Like it doesn't have to be 
these kind of preconceived things or setups that we know people will like. Use those, yes, but then also you can do something that may look dumb. <laughs> like <laughs> it may end up not looking cool, but for me, I like to take risks with posing and try different things the same way I might decide to place a light somewhere in the nook that mm-hmm. you know, it might add, add a, you know, some interest or flair to the image. Um, it's a tool that you can use for creativity. Yeah, an experimentation process, right? You know, right. and then you either it either doesn't work or it works oh, amazingly, oh, right? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's not a, I feel like when you're taking those risks that you don't often end up with a mediocre, it's either the one that you're like, uh, that didn't turn out how I thought it would, or it's like, whoa, (laughs) very cool. All right. So this next question is, well, it's more of a series. It's a lightning round. So they're very, very easy questions. Um, but we're going to move through them pretty quick here and, uh, let's see what you got. So, uh, Mac or PC? Mac. Mac. Zooms or primes? Primes. Uh, natural light, off-camera flash, or constant light, if you had to pick one? Natural. <laughs> <laughs> that's, always, oh, that's always a tough one. Um, Lightroom or oh, – <laughs> you change your mind? I change my mind. Uh, off-camera. Yeah. Off-camera. Yeah. I'm the same way. I prefer off-camera too. Yeah. Um, editing, do you use uh, Lightroom, Photoshop, Capture One? What do you prefer? Lightroom. I use Photoshop too, but mostly Lightroom. Mostly Lightroom. Cool. Um, shooting in, oh, well, I guess you're wedding photographer, so this may not necessarily play in too much, but studio or on location? On location. Um, your favorite camera accessory, so anything from bag, strap, flash, whatever. My favorite accessory is my double harness, I guess. I just got one of those, and it has been a game changer at weddings. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't have one before. Oh, um, yeah. Need that as a wedding photographer. Absolutely. Uh, are you a coffee, tea drinker, or neither? Both. Both. Um, or uh, it's medicinal for me, so I drink black coffee. Yes, I'm the same way. I'm a black coffee drinker, too. Uh, are you a cat or dog person? Dog. Dog. Same. <laughs> and if you're going out with a night with your friends, are you a, a beer, wine, or liquor drinker? What do you lean towards? Wine. Wine. And then are you a morning or evening person? Morning. Morning. Interesting. I'm still struggling to get to that point of being a morning person. I just cannot <laughs> get that. <laughs> well, <Happy> time. <laughs> awesome. Well, you survived our lightning round. And then uh, my last kind of fun question, which we also ask all of our guests, um, is if you have any recommended reading materials that you would suggest to somebody listening to this podcast, whether that be business um, or photography creative based. Um. Oh, there's a bunch that I like. Profit First. I don't remember the author's name. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nope. I've heard I've heard of that book. I don't remember who the, uh who it is either, but yeah. very cool. Uh why what is uh what about that book is uh draws you to it or comes, you know, why do you recommend that book? I think it's game changing for small business owners. It's you know, um will help you, you know. I think a lot of money organization, financial organization, or how to be profitable is something that we all struggle with. And mm-hmm. this kind of lays it out like, you know, you're, you know, the phrase speak to me, explain it like I'm in kindergarten, like I'm a five-year-old. <laughs> right. It's really easy to ingest and um, 
it, you know, will inspire you to make changes that will help you see more money in your pockets. Hmm, very cool. <laughs> I will have to check that one out then. I have not read it yet. Okay, awesome. So thank you so much again, Kesha, for joining me today. Um, at this point, I like to open it up to you and just let you kind of plug yourself anywhere people can find you if they want to know more about Kesha Lambert. Um, if you have any workshops or classes or anything you want to promote either, definitely feel free to throw them out here. Um, and then I got a couple listener questions that I want to get into with you. But uh, now the floor is yours. Feel free to uh, take it out and promote whatever you'd like. Well, thank you. First of all, thank you, Justin, for having me. You are amazing to speak with. And I actually, I, you know, I learned so much today, too. Um, it was nice chatting with you. Thank you. And um, you, I'm easily findable by name. My website is KeshaLambert.com. I'm on Instagram at KeshaLambert. Uh, Twitter, KeshaPhoto. And I recently started a TikTok account. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's Kesha Loves Hats. So you can follow along with me there. I share silly things and behind the scenes and things like that. Um, YouTube channel has been dormant, but I have some fun things planned um, for coming up very soon. So you might want to follow along. I will Exciting. be um, following my wedding season this year. Oh, so, very cool. And I have, we have a lot of awesome weddings on the lineup, some destination weddings and set against the backdrop of this interesting world we live in now. Right. So um, follow along there. It's Kesha Lambert photography. Um, but yeah, that's me in a nutshell. I, I, I love to keep in touch with people. I answer DMs, so reach out if you ever want to connect. And I'm a testament to that because here we are. <laughs> <laughs> um, just curious about your uh, the following your wedding season this year. Are you guys doing kind of like a vlog type thing? Or? Yeah, awesome. Like, uh, well, I'll definitely be checking that out for sure because I would love to see how you go about working on a wedding day. It's absolutely – like I said, um, anyone listening, definitely go look at Catcher's Images and you'll know exactly what I mean when I say that. I'd love to see how you go about creating those. Um, but thank you. That sounds great. Um, definitely go check out Kesha, everybody listening. And um, now I'll just get into these couple more questions we have. We've got two more, um, and these come from listeners who are listening to the podcast, and they wanted to ask a professional their opinion on this. So um, – our first question comes from Steve, and he says that I have been a full-time photographer for almost 10 years now, but I'm starting to find the work that I'm creating seems stale and unoriginal. Do you have any tips for how I could refresh my creativity? Absolutely. Uh, I, you know, and you'll get different answers from everyone, but I believe in stepping away from photography altogether. There are a couple of things. So that's one way. Um, another thing is, and forgive this scattering around. One thing that you can do, and a lot of people will say this, is a personal project. Because when you provide your, your, your creativity as a business transaction, it can suck the joy out of it, right? Mm -hmm. It can suck the inspiration, the mojo, whatever you want to call it. So you really just need to get back in touch with that. And that means shooting something that you're excited about mm -hmm. put a project together that you're really excited about it could be a series or it could be a one-off shoot but do some shooting for yourself things that interest you um if there's anything that you want to learn how to do or, or wanted something you want to do more of that you're not currently doing in your work you wish you could take more risk then test taking some of those risks when it's not in a client situation if you want to push the envelope with lighting or do some crazy poses then grab a couple and do that who you're who's not paying you to, to be you and do whatever right. you want 
creatively. Um, but the other piece of advice that can be so refreshing is to like completely disconnect. We are so plugged in, social, branding, we have to have our images up, we have to do that, you know, unplug from it all for a moment. Um, reconnect with the things that make you feel like yourself and bring you joy and then come back to it. So that would be the kind of two things that I say. Yeah, that's a great tip. And and Steve, how I kind of look at it is, um, and I agree with Kesha in the sense that you have to create for yourself to kind of find that inspiration again. And I think when, especially as somebody who may be successful with their photography and be booked constantly for client shoots, it, it gets really hard to express yourself creatively. And so what I do, um, and I actually took this advice from Lindsay Adler, who is a, uh, a Canon Explorer Light, an amazing fashion photographer in New York City. But she said she plans one day a month where she creates something for herself, an idea that she has, something that she wants to create. And she does not entertain clients on that day or client work or anything. It's just focused solely on the inspiration side of photography. <clears throat> and I've tried to start doing that. Um, where I allow myself one creative shoot a month where I get to express, you know, something that I have an interest in that may not necessarily appeal to a client, but appeals to me and allows me to kind of flex my creativity, you know, and, and, and push myself to do something different that I'm not doing on a daily basis. Um, so that's helped me out because when it gets to, you know, I feel the same way when I'm shooting weddings, I feel like, okay, I'm doing this all the time. I, you know, I'm, I'm posing families and this isn't necessarily fun, but you have to make time for that. And then when you find that time, I think that will kind of refresh and get you thinking about things in a different light. Um, second question here comes from Tanner. Um, Tanner says, I bought my first camera this past year and my editing is not where I want it to be. So I've been considering purchasing presets to develop my own style. Do you recommend using presets or should I stick to finding my own editing style? So for me, in terms of style, editing style, because editing style is important, what people can expect. I think presets are a starting point. Um, a good starting point, let's say you can use presets to kind of figure out what you like. Um, but it's good to kind of also, um, so I use presets, but I use them, I almost always am making adjustments to them. I have like my side presets or my go-tos that I use. Mm -hmm. um, so I use it as a baseline to get everything co cohesive. And I found a preset that I like. I used to be anti-preset, but I found presets that I like to use that give me a baseline for what I want them to look like. Um, I do think it's important to spend a little time kind of figuring out what you like. Presets might be helpful tool in allowing you to do that. I feel the same way. And I, I don't exactly use presets, um, but I have found that presets allowed i used presets more as a tool when i was starting out and i didn't know it at the time i i didn't realize this is what i was doing but now looking back on it i use them as a tool to better understand how to edit photographs um mm -hmm. the presets will give you that you, you know a look a unique look and then from there you can kind of customize it to make it your own um so that's i i agree with you there kesha that's a great tip um but thank you steve and tanner for the questions um, and to the rest of our listeners, if you have any questions you want to ask a professional in a future episode, please email them over to social at thepixelconnection.com for a chance to have them answered on a podcast episode. 
Uh, but that's going to do it for today's episode, everyone. Thank you again, Kesha, one last time. I'm so excited to have met you and had the opportunity to speak with you. And thank you t for taking time out of your schedule to sit down and speak with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank You're you everyone again. All right. Have a good one, Kesha. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Wow, guys, that was a seriously awesome episode. Thank you so much for listening in today. And before we wrap things up here, I do want to just take a minute. Um, we've got some uh, news from our sponsor and our friends over at the Pixel Connection uh, about a new Sigma 35 millimeter art lens. So why don't we dive right into that? The Sigma 35mm f1.4 art lens came out back in 2013 and was one of the first lenses of Sigma's art lineup, um, which would eventually explode into a huge lineup of high quality primes and zoom lenses. The lenses were characterized by their hefty build quality and optical quality. Now in 2021, uh, Sigma has reworked their 35mm and optimized it for the Sony E and Panasonic slash Leica L mounts. The new lens is slightly shorter, slightly lighter, and with a different optical design than the 35mm f1.4 Art DG HSM for E-mount. The biggest improvement though may be the fact that the lens can now be considered weather resistant with seals and gaskets throughout the lens. The original lens just had an autofocus and manual focus switch along with the focus ring, while the new lens adds an aperture ring with a D-click switch, an aperture ring lock, and a focus hold button similar to the 35mm GM for Sony. The new 35mm art easily holds its own against lenses at a much higher price, including Sony's new 35mm f1.4 G Master. During some quick comparisons, the Sigma was a tiny bit softer wide open, but the difference quickly disappeared by f2.8. The same applies to the chromatic aberration, which is much more obvious on the Sigma when shooting at f1.4. When testing the lens out, the autofocus performed perfectly on a Sony a7R4, and the lens was quick to lock onto subjects. Eye autofocus worked quite well for a normal length lens at further distances, as with the Sigma art lenses, the autofocus motors are virtually silent with no audible noise detected, even when filming a few clips using the in-camera microphone. When shooting on a bright sunny day or into bright city lights, there was virtually no lens flare. The out-of-focus area is nice and smooth and the subjects are sharp, sometimes a bit too sharp for portraits actually. If you like the 35mm focal length and like fast aperture lenses, your choice will be between the Sigma 35mm Art DGDN and the Sony 35mm G Master. If you are on a tight budget, the 35mm Art DG HSM is an option, but at only $200 more, the new version blows it out of the water, and you'll be better protected against water with its weather sealing. At $500 less than the 35mm G Master, the Sigma is well worth taking a look at. Whether or not the small differences are worth the extra price, only you can decide. Please visit the link in our show notes to the Pixel Connections website to order yours today. Thanks everybody so much for listening. I'll see you in the next episode.